Now, again, uh, if this is one of your first times with us, we are thankful to have you here. Uh, and if this is your church home, we are also thankful that you are here. This week, we are back into our study of the book of Exodus. So just give you a few a heads up on some of our preaching schedule and where we're going the next couple of weeks. Uh, we will be in the book of, <clears throat> excuse me, in the book of Exodus until the end of Exodus chapter 6. Uh, and then at that time, we're going to take a brief pause uh, for an Advent, uh, if that word is new for you, a Christmas uh, sermon series, where we'll be kind of zooming out of the book of Exodus and for six weeks covering the big storyline of the Bible. And then we're going to be zooming back into the book of Exodus. And then we'll be in Exodus for, I don't know, five or ten years or so. I'm just kidding. Uh, maybe. I don't know. No, I'm just kidding. Maybe. Uh, we'll see. Um, but, uh, but for today, we're actually going to be in Exodus chapter 4. If you're newer to the Bible, Exodus is the second book of the Bible. I uh, would love for you to turn there. We're going to be covering a lot of text today. Um, and so if you're looking for chapters as well, you're like, what's a chapter? Chapter is the big, bold number. So Exodus, the second book of the Bible, chapter is the big, bold number. Exodus 4. Uh, and then we'll start in verse 1 at the very beginning of it. And uh, although all of our chapters have been massive to cover in one sermon, I mean, Exodus 1, Exodus 2, Exodus 3, those, those are massive. Uh, by God's kindness and by the good graces of our pastors, uh, I am not preaching all of Exodus chapter 4 today. Uh, I joked with them, like, that would be a five-hour sermon. Um, and so now you just get half of that. So praise God. Um, I'm kidding. If you're newer, I'm kidding. Um, but, uh, but we are going to be covering Exodus chapter 4, verses 1 to 17. And I'm really excited to begin to jump into this section of, of Scripture. Today what we're going to see is we're picking back up on a conversation that actually began in Exodus chapter 3. And so if you want to skim actually with me Exodus chapter 3, we're going to just recap a little bit about what we've seen so far. It's kind of like walking into a movie and you don't know what's happening, you don't know the characters, you're like, what's going on? I don't want you to get that way today because we're jumping into the middle of a conversation. So let's back up and see where this conversation came from and how to get to where it is at now. So if we remember last week, God began this conversation with Moses in a pretty bizarre way. Moses was at work one day. So think about you, whether you're you know, slinging pain or, or out of, working IT, whatever. Uh, he's, he's out there doing this. Uh, and, and as he's doing his work, shepherding these sheep, he looked over and saw that a bush was set ablaze. Or as we talked about last week, there was a, a bush that was on fire, but it was not being consumed. And so Moses, kind of like what we would all do, you know, anytime you hear a loud crash or you see a fire or an ambulance goes, what do you do? You walk out of your house like, what's going on? Right? Like, like what's happening? That's what Moses did. He's just like us. He walked out like, what, what, why is this fire? What's going on? So he, he walks up to the fire and lo and behold, God speaks to him out of the fire and tells him to take off his sandals that the ground that he's on has been made holy by the very presence of God. And then God begins to explain to Moses that, uh, to, to him that he is uh, the God of Moses's forefathers, the God that Moses had heard about growing up, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Moses, upon hearing these words and hearing the voice of God speaking to him, is immediately terrified. Right? He, he knows that no man can look upon God and live, and God is speaking to him out of the bush. And so it says he's terrified. He's very, very afraid. And yet what we see is that Moses didn't die. That's God's kindness. Rather, God quickly assures him that he isn't there to punish him for his sins. No, rather, God has a job for Moses. See, just as Moses, if you remember, had seen the affliction of his people and he wanted to do something about it, so God had seen their affliction and God is going to do something about it. 
God knew the sufferings of his people. He heard the cries of his people. And now it was time for him to bring them out of slavery and into the promised land. If you remember Genesis chapter 15, God promises this to Abraham, that they'll go into slavery for 400 years, and then God would liberate them with, with signs and wonders and bring them out. And as they do, they will plunder that land. And so this is all about to happen just as God said it would happen. And God reminds Moses, he says, I'm going to deliver them and bring them into a broad land, a good land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and I'm going to deliver them. And then this is where Moses comes into the picture, right? God's plan is to send Moses back to Egypt, back to Pharaoh, the king of the Egyptians, so that Moses can help bring God's people out of slavery and into this promised land. He was going to lead his people out of slavery. Man, that is a job, right? That is a job. And God knows that the last time that Moses tried to save the Israelites from the hand of the Egyptians, what happened? He killed a dude and then he ran for his life. And he spent 40 years running and hiding in the wilderness, shepherding these sheep. He went from Pharaoh's house to shepherding sheep. And now God is saying, go back. This is crazy. And remember to see that connection that Moses, just as Moses had seen the affliction and tried to do something about it and it went terribly, this time God has seen it. God is going to enact his covenant promises. He has seen their affliction. It will not last any longer and God will liberate them. But fascinatingly enough, it will not be by their might. It will not be by their strength. God is not coming to amass an army from the Israelites and have them take over. Remember that was Pharaoh's big fear. That's not what God is going to do. No, instead, God's people will be bystanders. They will sit and watch God liberate them and they will not do anything to help, nothing. So that God is the one who will get all of the glory from liberating and saving these people. And so Moses gets to be the guy that just goes and tells them all of these things and just like hopes God's gonna come through and do what he promised he would do. I mean, what a job, like this would be crazy. And Moses, upon hearing this, he asked a question that you might ask. He said, who am I? Who am I, man? that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel up out of Egypt. And then God has a really interesting response. God simply lets Moses know, I will be with you. Moses isn't going this alone. And when all those people are brought out of Egypt, God says they they will worship with you on the mountain that you are currently standing on. So the question of Moses says, well, this job, I mean, who am I? God says, it doesn't matter who you are. Remember who I am. I love that. God didn't even answer his question. He just tells him, reminds him who he is. And then Moses asks a second question. He says, okay, well, if, if, okay, gotcha. If I come to the people of Israel and I tell them the God of your fathers has sent me to you, what name shall I tell them? Like, how, how will I tell them this? What shall I say? And this is where we have this beautiful moment where God responds with his covenant name. I am who I am. A phrase that if you were here during our miracle studies, we talked at nauseam about over and over and over again. It's this part right here where God gives his covenant name. And God tells Moses, tell the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. I am the Lord, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He is the one who has sent me. And then God just keeps going. He assures Moses he is with him and he lays out the plan. Now listen to this plan. Moses is to go. He's to gather the elders of Israel and he's supposed to say to them, guys, God has appeared to me and he has observed you and everything that's gone on in Egypt. And he promises he's going to raise you up out of the affliction by these crazy miracles and then take us into the promised land. And we're going to go out with lots of gold and silver. We're going to go out with lots of of things with us. And God assures Moses of all this. And then God says, you and the elders are then. So it goes to the elders first, talks to them. Then they and the elders are supposed to go together and say to the king of Egypt, 
The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and we are to go a three days journey into the wilderness and make sacrifices. So that's the great plan of God. Moses just goes, say all this stuff. But God assures him right from the beginning. He says, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So God says, I will stretch out my hand and I will strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, after that, he will let you go. And as you go, you'll plunder Egypt. Again, this is all exactly what God promised Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. All those promises are coming true, reminding us as we read all these chapters and as it would later remember and remind the Israelites as they would reflect back on this for generation after generation after generation that the covenant-making God of the Bible always fulfills his promises. Always. He has not forgotten nor abandoned his people. He knows their suffering. And as Matt talked about last week in a beautiful sermon, which you've got to listen to, go and listen to it. It's very good. That God didn't abandon his people. Even in their fiery trials, they have not gone unnoticed by God. He's working in their waiting. He's sovereign over them. He's with them in the fire and in the flood. And all this conversation between God and Moses leads us into today's text. We're going to be covering, as I said, Exodus chapter 4, verses 1 to 17. And in this text today, we're going to see Moses, upon hearing all these things from God, of all these things that God is saying, go and do this, and I will do this, and say this, and all of this, this enormous task, Moses is going to have two concerns. He's going to have two of them. The first one, as we'll see in verses 1 to 9, is that he's afraid that the elders of Israel won't listen to him. I mean, you, you can imagine why, Right? Like in hearing everything that we just talked about, I mean, he was the son of Pharaoh. Remember, he was drawn up out of the water and grew up in Pharaoh's household. So he never knew slavery. He never walked through suffering. He, li- he lived like a bougie little rich kid life in Pharaoh's kingdom. You know what I mean? And then one day he's like, oh, oh they're, they're abusing an Israelite. I'm going to go kill him. And then he runs away. And he's gone 40 years. And then he's just going to show up and say, guys, I saw a bush in the forest. And it was God. And I now am your leader. Follow me. If anyone ever just comes in and is like, I saw a bush in the wilderness. I was all alone. No one else saw it but me. Like, you would be like, I'm not going to follow that guy. That guy's a little weird. I'm pretty sure there's something in that Kool-Aid. Not drinking it. Like, there's something off here, right? And and this is exactly what Moses' fear is. Like, like, what kind of plan is this? This is a huge concern. Like, think about me. How am I going to convince these elders of Israel to follow me? Which will then bring us to his second concern, and that's that he isn't eloquent enough. He's slow of speech and of tongue. And then we're going to see God respond again uh, in verses uh, 10 to 17. And so let's pray one more time, and then we'll dive right back in, because we're going to need God's help to help us, because I'm going to talk, I'm going to talk really fast, because we've got a lot we've got to get through, and if not, we're going to be here nine hours. So, uh, you with me? Good. All right. Let's pray. And then, uh, and then we'll, we'll start walking through the text. So, Father... Father, we, we come into this time together as we open your word as a needy people. God, we need you to open our minds to comprehend your word. We need you to keep us faithful to this text. We need you to show us that you, that you are faithful to accomplish all of your plans and all of your purposes with busted up people like Moses and then busted up people like us. God, I thank you that we can come to you with all of our concerns, that you are the creator of all things, the only true and living God who dwells in unapproachable light. And, and, yet, and yet you are with us, guiding us by your spirit, providing for us day by day. And so as we come into your word, I pray that you would give us minds to comprehend and hearts that are soft and ears that hear. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus, our God, King, and Savior. Amen. 
Amen. Well, let's dive into uh, the text as we'll see those first nine verses, as I mentioned, which is Moses's concern and then how God responds. So let's look at me with uh, Exodus uh, chapter four, verse one. It says, then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice for they will say the Lord did not appear to you. And let's pause. Do you see his concern there? We talked about it a couple of times, but I want you to see exactly from the text. I'm not making up this concern. This is exactly what Moses says. And it's an interesting thing to do when you're reading through the Bible to see if you can begin to trace what are some of the concerns, what are some of the problems, and then how is that resolved within the Bible as we're walking through. So, so Moses' first concern, right? The first concern, I'm not going to be received well. I'm not going to be believed. They're going to say, the Lord did not appear to you. That's what he immediately thinks. He, he thinks they'll hear of his experience in the wilderness. And maybe they'll scoff at him. And as we talked about, maybe that is a valid concern. I mean, he's not one of them. He has not been with them in suffering. He has not been one of the elders of Israel that's been leading God's people as they have been suffering and walking through all of this terrible stuff for the last 40 years. They will see him as an outsider, uh, a bougie kid, someone who doesn't understand anything that they're walking through. Right, so, so, so he's going to just show up and say, oh, by the way, now I'm going to lead God's people and all of you have to listen to me? Like, that would be a valid concern, man. And it is, but, but God had already told him, remember Exodus chapter 3, verse 18, that the elders will listen. He's promised him that. But as Moses hears that, it doesn't land on his heart very well. He's like, but God, you don't understand. I don't think they're going to listen to me. And so this is kind of the fear in his life. And God has been, as I mentioned, incredibly clear. Not only will they listen to him, but they will go with him to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh will not respond well, but then God will work miracles and then save his people. And it's fascinating. Notice, notice that in chapter 3, who is Moses afraid of? Who's he afraid of? God. Remember, he takes off his sandals and he's terrified because God is speaking to him. Here, who is he afraid of? Not God. He's afraid of these elders of, these, of God's people. He's, he's afraid they're not going to listen to me. They're not going to think I came from you. It's fascinating. There's this greater fear here that just grips his heart. He's heard God's voice clearly speaking out of a bush, but he's wrestling with it because of his fear of being rejected by the elders of Israel. He's afraid that they won't believe him. They didn't appear to him. And all of this makes him hesitant, this fear of others and their acceptance of him. It just overwhelms him in this moment. I mean, there's a lot in here that could overwhelm him, right? There's a lot here, but it's interesting that it's the fear of these elders. That's what grips his heart more than anything else. The fear of not being received well, not being listened to. It just begins to well up in his heart and produce fear about doing what God has actually called him to do. And yet verse one also tells us something incredibly important about Moses and how he dealt with those fears. I don't know if you notice that. Notice, does he hide his fears from God? Or does he talk to God about his fears? He talks to him about that. Isn't that a fascinating thing? He talks to the Lord about his fears that he, he brings them to God. He brings to God this fear of being rejected. He makes it plain and he talks to him about it. And we might think that God would not care much about our fears and struggles. Right, maybe from bad experiences with our parents or friends or those we've trusted throughout the years. So we, like Moses, or unlike Moses, we might be tempted to think that God would chastise Moses here and, and look at Moses and say, how dare you question me? I'm God. I'm speaking to you from a bush. 
But God doesn't chastise Moses at all. There, there will come a time, we'll see it in today's text, where as Moses persists in disobedience, God's anger will be kindled against him. Next week, God will almost kill him. But right here, that's not what we see happening. Right here, we see God graciously meeting Moses exactly where he is and emboldening Moses by giving him signs and help, showing God's steadfast love. So verse two, we see the first sign that God gives. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? I, I want <clears throat> to pause here. I know we're not getting very far yet. I, I want to pause here. Before Moses responds, I want to give a little side note <clears throat> that when we're reading the Bible, when we see God ask questions, it's not because God doesn't know the answer to the question. Right? God's not just like, oh, I can't see that. What's in your hand over there? We believe God is omniscient. He knows all things possible, probable, and actual. He knows all the places you could be right now. He knows all the places you could not possibly be, like Pluto, which I don't know if that's a planet or anymore, but he does. Um, and, uh, and so he knows all, all things possible, probable, and actual. So, so when we see God asking questions in the Bible, it's not as if God is looking for information. Rather, God is asking them because he's teaching us something about himself. So whenever God asks a question in the Bible, it's not like God's like, oh, I don't know the answer. No, he, he knows the answer in the same way that you might ask your kid, hey, did you eat one of those cookies? And you know the answer. You're not looking for an answer. You know the answer. The answer is yes, right? <clears throat> so, so God's questions, likewise, are like directions to the truth, right? Think about the same thing in, in Genesis chapter three, when God comes to Adam and Eve, does he know what they have done? Does he know where they are? Yes. He asks questions, which gives directions to the truth. So that's good to remember. Anytime we see God asking a question in the Bible, he's teaching us something. But let's get back to the text. So what is that in your hand? And he said, it is a staff. And he, God, said, throw it on the ground. And it became a serpent, a snake, and Moses ran from it. And I love this line of the Bible. It's funny, and it's exactly what I would do if this happened to me. I mean, we might read through this, and we're like, oh, Moses, you're, it's going to be fine. You're going to do this, whatever. It's going to be fine. But if this is the first time you're ever reading through this, and you're like, wait, homeboy threw. Homie, homeboy just got told by God to throw his staff onto the ground, and he did, and it became a snake. Yo, you would run from that, too. Think about later today. You're, like, vacuuming your house. All of a sudden, your vacuum drops, and it becomes a snake. That would terrify you. Like, absolutely terrifying. You're doing some IT work, it drops on the ground somehow, it just turns into a snake and slithers away. Like, this would terrify you. And Moses does exactly what I would do. He ran. Like, he got out of there. He's like, I don't know what just happened. I, I whittled this thing, and it just turned into something that can move. Ah, uh, this, is, this is insane, right? And this is a great scene, but I love that into this fear of Moses, God spoke, verse 4, and he said... Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. Now, again, let's pause for a moment. Some of us are city folk, right? Some of us are country folk. Some of us are like a mixture between like city country folk. We all know, uh, right? Even me, I'm public school educated. Even I know you do not grab a snake by the tail. If you do, it turns and bites you, right? And then you die. At least that's what I was taught by as a, as a kid by my mom in East Texas. There's lots of snakes. You don't, don't, you don't do that. You leave them alone. You, I, we all have a good grasp of, of knowing that, right? You don't go for the tail. You go for the head. You pin it down. You throw a sheet on top of it. You do various things, but you don't grab it by the tail. But notice God tells him to do that. 
grab it by the tail. And Moses knows. Moses knows what happens when you grab snakes by the tail. But he listens to God anyway. And I think it's because when God turns your staff into a snake, you, whatever God says, you do. You know what I mean? Like, let's just, be, let's just be honest. Like, God says, do that, you do it. So he grabs it, and he put out his hand, he caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. This is a crazy miracle. What a sign. If I was a kid at church today and I'm with my parents, I'd be thinking like, dude, we're talking about snakes. This is nuts. This is a great day. Don't, don't grab snakes by the tail though. Okay. Uh, hope I've made that abundantly clear. Parents, reaffirm that later. Um, it, but the other thing we need to think about in this as well is I don't know if this happened all the time. Right? Like, think about that. Like, if he threw it down just for fun every now and then to make sure it still worked, did it still work? Later on that night, if he was going to bed and like put his staff up and it accidentally fell down, did it turn to a snake and just disappear? Like, or if it was this only very specific times? There's only this moment and then with the elders and then before Pharaoh. We aren't told, but we do know that this is a crazy miracle of God. And we know why it was given. Look at me in verse five. It was given, God said, that they may believe. See, he said, Moses, if you're worried, if you're worried, they're not going to believe you. Don't worry. Here's a sign to show them, a tangible, physical sign, a miracle of God, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to you. And isn't it cool to see that God provides for Moses this wonderful sign? And so the first sign is the sign of the staff. But before we move on to the next signs, I want us to think about this. Is there any significance to this sign? I mean, why did he turn it into a snake? Well, if we remember, as we ought, Genesis chapter 3, we'll remember that there's a serpent who deceives Adam and Eve. And it's a snake that God promises will be crushed by the head of the seed of a woman, a boy that will come from her, that will redeem God's people. And he will redeem the earth, the ground itself, from the curse of sin. So I think we're supposed to remember Genesis when reading Exodus, right? We're to remember God's power on display that will be over the serpent. And it's interesting to see, even in the life of Moses, we have a little glimpse, a little foreshadow, a little preview of the coming day when there will be a serpent that will be crushed under the head of the true and better Moses. Jesus, God himself, who comes to be the redeemer of his people, who, by the way, sees us in our plight and suffering and bondage to Satan's sin and death, and at the perfect time comes and is pierced by the snake, bitten, and crushes its head, victorious over it, as he leads us out and plunders us from Satan's kingdom, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And to get there, this is what I mean. The kings of Egypt, I don't know if you know this, historically, they would wear headdresses. That would be the sign of a serpent. Their headdresses would be a serpent, which when my kids watch Ninjago always freaks me out. Only parents would get that. Serpentines. Uh, Interestingly enough, so they wear this, this headdress of serpent to produce fear in those around them. But also Egyptians worship snakes. Not only that, but they considered Pharaoh to be the son of God, one of the sons of God, and they worshiped him as a god. So that's exactly what we're going to see throughout these next 11 chapters of the book of Exodus is a little glimpse of this crushing of the head of the serpent by God himself through various miraculous means, all to demonstrate that Yahweh is stronger than every governmental power. In the silly serpent of old that has from the beginning been deceiving, he has all of his number or all of his days numbered, every single one of them. So that's the first sign. Now to the second one. God gave to Moses the sign of disease. Verse Six. It says, again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Now, there is a bit of a debate over this phrase among Bible commentators. And 
faithful pastors, they disagree, of exactly what is happening here. And the debate is exactly on what happens to Moses' hand. Puts it in, brings it back out. Is this leprosy or Hansen's disease? Or is it some other kind of really terrible sickness that you don't know what the cause is, but you see the outcome of it is just white skin. So you don't know what the really terrible disease is that's killing you, but it looks as if your whole skin just turns deathly pale, terrible white. Whatever you think on that, it's like this terrible disease that will kill you or that terrible disease that will kill you. The whole point is that this is a very terrible disease that could kill you. And if the snake made Moses run, this would have caused him to have a mental breakdown. You know what I mean? It's like you pull it out and you're like, oh, I'm going to die. Like immediately, this would have been his thought. Like you did all this just to kill me? Like what is, what is going on? Verse 7, though, God, very quick, I don't know, very quickly, I imagine God did this very quickly. He said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. When he took it back out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. And you'd be saying, whew, praise God. And God would say, that's right. Uh, you should be praising me. Right? If, if only you can imagine the, restri- the relief that would just streamed across his face. And this mighty sign is meant to demonstrate that the God of Israel is the one who has dominion over every sickness. It, all sickness bends to accomplish his plans and purposes. He has the power to give disease and he has the power to heal it, which we're about to see in the book of Exodus. Even over the most deadly and contagious disease imaginable, disease has no ability, no ability to thwart God's plans and purposes, not in the slightest. And as Matt wrote in a text conversation earlier this week, he said, it's indicative. I'm going to quote you. You ready? Oh, it's not there. Where'd it go? Oh, I was going to quote you. I didn't put it in there. I'm sorry. Uh, he said, this is so good. I'll text it all to you later on Signal. This is what he said. He said, God will be the one to both give and lift the plagues on Egypt with Pharaoh's court as mere spectators. And I'm so glad he's my pastor. Uh, I, I love that guy. What a, what a great reminder as we walk in, as we're about to see all of these coming plagues, that God alone has the power to give them. God alone has the ability to take them away, which is a pattern we're going to see repeated over and over and over again in the coming chapters. And then God said, verse 8, if they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. So Moses, God gives Moses two signs, and he's not done yet. And this brings us to the third sign, which is water to blood. Water to blood. Verse 9, God says, If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile, pour it on the dry ground, and the water you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground, which is, I think, one of the most disgusting signs ever. Like, you ever just seen blood all over the ground? That would be disgusting. And it would smell terrible. This would not be a good sign. And we don't have any record of Moses actually doing this particular sign in this moment. But we can assume that he did, that God performed this sign in this moment to show his power over nature and life itself. And it's interesting that this sign, water into blood, is the last sign that God gives to Moses to convince the elders of Israel that God had truly sent Moses as his spokesman. So it's the last sign given, but also, do you notice, it's also the first sign of the ten plagues. Remember, where just as Pharaoh had turned the Nile River red with the blood of all those boys of Israel that were murdered, so God will turn all water in Egypt into blood. Not only in the Nile, but anywhere in the entire kingdom where there is water. In water bottles, in water cauldron, water everywhere will all be blood, showing his supremacy and sovereignty over all things. 
And this is a really interesting sign because we know from history that the Nile River also was a god to be worshipped by the Egyptians. One historian writes, The river was endless in its bounty, and the people sang its praises continually. They called it the father of life, the mother of all, and the manifestation of God. So in this sign, this miraculous work of God, God is showing, as one pastor noted, compared to God's great power, the Nile is a trickling stream. Man, that's good. And so there are those three signs that are given all to get Moses' attention to embolden him to trust in God. And they are meant to be God's great kindness to equip him as he goes to these elders of Israel. And he goes with these miracles, just like we talked about in the, the, our series in the book of John. Remember the miracles of Jesus? Nobody had words like Jesus and nobody had the miracles like Jesus and the miracles of Jesus authenticated the the words of Jesus. Likewise, as Moses goes forth as God's spokesman, the works that he has will authenticate the words that he has for God's people. So they will trust and believe. And as one pastor noted, he said from this, verses one to nine, he said the lesson for Moses and for us in those first nine verses is that God is all powerful. And God can take anything into his hand and use it for his own glory. He said, even Moses' life and your life, my life. So Moses doesn't need to fear rejection of the elders of Israel. How could he fear them when literally the creator God of the universe is with him? They will listen. And these miracles were given to prove it. And then as we turn and look at verses 10 to 17, we might assume that Moses is good to go, right? He has all these promises of God. He has these words from God. He has these miracles of God. God has given him his covenant name and spoken to him from the burning bush. Everything looks great. Moses, all he should do now is go, get packed, hop on his camel. I don't know if he had a camel, but if he did, he'd hop on it and he'd take off and be there later on that night. But as we'll see, Moses is so fearful of rejection. He's plagued by these thoughts. He's just the wrong man for the job. He doesn't have the skills necessary to lead God's people. He can't even speak well enough to do so. And so in these next few verses, we're going to see him bring these fears again before God and then God's response. So look with me at verse 10. Moses said to the Lord, Oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you've spoken to me, right? Beforehand or right now. Like there's no Jedi mind trick that you just did that made me be able to speak better right now in this moment. Like, you didn't do that for me. I think you have the wrong God. It's basically what he's saying, right? He he says, I am slow of speech and of tongue. And again, we aren't necessarily sure what this might have been for Moses, whether he had a speech impediment or whether he was afraid of public speaking or whether he spoke slowly, much slower than I do. Uh, but, But we should just be happy. We should be happy. Let the plain reading of the text be the plain reading of the text and say collectively, we don't know exactly what this is. So in the same way that Paul has a thorn in the flesh, we aren't told exactly what that thorn is. In the same way here, this is something that makes him feel inadequate, that makes him slow of speech. We're not sure exactly what it is. But again, even in in all these fears, notice with me again, Moses brings these fears to God as well. And I love this. What an encouragement for us, brothers and sisters, to do the same thing to God. Bring these things before the Lord. Yet in this encounter, in this encounter, God doesn't give him more signs. God doesn't do, as I mentioned, any Jedi mind trick or make him more eloquent. God doesn't change his speech at all. But rather, God reminds Moses about who God is. It's kind of that first question. Who who am I? Like, who am I to go do this? God says, it doesn't matter who you are. Look at who I am. In the same way, let's listen in. So the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? 
Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth, and I will teach you what you shall speak. And I I love God's great kindness here in reminding Moses of his sovereign care and crafting Moses' mouth. Truly, he has knit Moses together in his mother's womb. And he's reminding Moses that whatever deficiency that Moses sees in himself, it is not a surprise to the Lord. Right? But rather, this will be the evidence of God's work in Moses' life. This will be a reminder that God has the power, as one pastor explained, to overcome Moses' deficiency. So that if a man like Moses, as broken as he is, with slowness of speech, if he can be used by the Lord, then anyone can be. And that's a, that's a great thing for us to think through in this text. So, so Moses, go, God says. And he promises, I'm going to be with your mouth. If you're worried about your, don't be worried about your mouth. I'm going to be with it. If you're worried about not being smart enough, not knowing the right things, I'm the one who gives all wisdom and knowledge. I have like storehouses behind my house. Like I, I, I got this. Don't worry about it. Just go. And Moses, upon hearing all these things and seeing the Lord's great kindness and all of these things, we, we might think at this point in the text, the knee-jerk reaction of Moses is to say, all right, here we go. But that's not what he says. He looks at God and says, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Please send someone else. And then, and then verse 14, we see this interesting phrase. If you're reading your Bible text, you're like, what do you do with this? It says, then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. It's kindled against him. It's an interesting phrase. Up to this point, <clears throat> I'm talking about the anger of, of God, uh, this phrase, the anger. Uh, there's no reason from the argumentation of any of the passage there's anger of God up to this point, is there? We see nothing that would say that there's any anger of God towards Moses at all in any of these questions. But here, notice with me here in this persistent faithlessness of Moses, this stubborn insistence against God's clear commands, we see the anger of God being kindled against him. And throughout these first few books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, this anger, this phrase for anger that we see here, as far as I can tell in my research uh, and study of it, and feel free to correct me afterwards. If you know any better of the word af and how it's used in these books, uh, but from my research and study on that, we don't see it at all found in the book of Genesis. We see it one other time in the book of Exodus. We see it three times in the book of Numbers, and we see it five times in the book of Deuteronomy. And so I wanted to examine some of these just real briefly so that we can then look back and understand what is this anger being kindled from the Lord against him, and what does this mean, and why is this here? So let's examine those briefly. Um, So Exodus chapter 32, if you want to flip there, you can, or you can just make a note. This phrase is used actually by Aaron, Moses' brother. And Aaron is telling Moses to not let Moses' anger burn hot against him for making a golden calf and leading all of Israel to worship it as an idol. So he says, don't let your anger burn hot against me. So this is a holy, righteous anger for misleading God's people away from God's clear commands. Then, Numbers chapter 11, we see this word used when the people are complaining against God because they have no meat. Only this constant manna dripping from heaven every day. And they just long to go back to Egypt, to return to the land of their oppression. If only it meant they could eat some of the delicacies of Egypt again. If only we could eat something better than this 
terrible food. Again, they are rebelling against God, longing for slavery. When he has worked wonders to liberate them and they're being an obstinate, rebellious people against him. Numbers chapter 12, Miriam, who's Moses' sister, and Aaron, his brother, they rebel against Moses' leadership, the man that God has chosen to lead Israel because they think they can lead better than Moses, which they probably could. Moses is a pretty broken dude. So what they try to do is they try to stage a coup, and this incites God's anger. For God alone is the one who's chosen Moses for this monumental role and to be a type of the coming salvation of his people, a foretaste of Jesus. And their rebellion against Moses is actually a rebellion against God's choice for who shall lead God's people. And interestingly enough, God's anger is kindled against them. God audibly speaks to Moses and Aaron and Miriam. He calls them out, makes them stand before him. And in his judgment, he judges them. He doesn't do anything to Aaron because Aaron is the priest. But to Miriam, do you know what he does to her? Whiteness of skin all over her body, which should immediately remind you, where have I seen whiteness of skin as her, as like in thinking about God's judgment before? And it should drive you right back to Exodus chapter four. So he was given to prove that God had sent him, that he was the leader that God had chosen. And again, the same thing happens to show the exact same thing. Again, in Deuteronomy chapter six, Israel is warned that after God brings them into the promised land, when their houses are filled with good things, they need to take care not to forget the Lord who brought them out of slavery. And they shall not go after false gods, worthless idols, demons that try to steal the worship of God. And the reason for this is given in Deuteronomy chapter six, verse 15. It says, the Lord is in your midst and he's a jealous God. So don't worship idols lest the anger of God be kindled against you and he destroy you from the face of the earth. And the last one, Deuteronomy 29, 20, is where we see the curses laid out by God for his people if they disobey the covenant. If they aren't careful to obey the voice of the Lord their God and be careful to do all of his commandments and all of his statutes that he has commanded them to walk in, then God's anger will be kindled against them. And so I mentioned all those passages, and this is why we love studying the Bible, because we see references like this and we get a broader picture of what's happening back in our text. See, God has called Moses equipped him with everything that he needs and told him to go to Egypt. And in all of this, Moses doesn't, when he hears God's word, he doesn't obey it, but rather he is persistently walking in disobedience to what God has commanded him to do. And so just as in the other references, when God's people walk in disobedience, they kindle his anger against them as his people. Now, does this mean that Israel quit being his people just because his anger was kindled against them? Right? Does God get angry and he's just done with them because they don't obey? Well, no. They did not become his people by their faithfulness, by their obedience to the law. And they cannot quit being God's people because of their disobedience, their faithlessness. Right? So in the same way that my kids, they can't do anything that's terrible enough for them to quit being my kid. They're my kid. But they either get to walk in the blessings that dad gives them or the non-blessings that dad gives them. Uh, In the same way, this is what we see God doing with his people in the Bible. Now, the only difference of that between me and the Lord uh, is that I am a broken sinner. So even when I disapprove of what my kids are doing and I help correct them, It's because I think that I'm a little God and I want things to go my way and I want them to act how I want them to act. The Lord is not like me. Praise God. And and so what we see here is he, as the perfect judge, disciplines those that he loves and his anger is kindled against, against us that we might turn, repent, and do the things that we know that we ought to do, the things he's commanded us as his kids to do. 
And yet notice, even in the anger of God being kindled, God is still gracious and kind to Moses in this moment. God looks at him and he says, please send somebody else. And God is so kind. God here has actually providentially used this entire situation to bring Aaron, his brother, into the picture. So pick with me back up in verse 14b. And he, God, said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he's coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he'll be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. And here's how that will happen. Verse 16, he will speak for you to the people and shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. So interestingly enough, this is the first time we're even told that Moses has a brother in the Bible. We knew about Miriam. She asked Pharaoh's daughter when uh, Pharaoh's daughter drew him about. She said, do you want me to go find someone to nurse him? I know my mom can, uh, and, and, and kind of provided a way to have government assistance uh, to take care of Moses when he was growing up. But we've never heard that Moses had an older brother before. Notice as well that it's God is the one who takes the initiative in choosing Aaron. And God intentionally, intentionally explains that he can speak well. In fact, God told Moses that Aaron is coming out to meet him. And this whole thing is really fascinating, isn't it? As Christians, we love, trust, and believe the Bible. Everything that we believe is built on the foundation of Scripture. It is inerrant, infallible. We trust it complicitly, totally. It's God's word for us. We trust and believe it. When we don't understand it, we still submit to it. And, and so the fascinating thing, though, is that God's word is also sufficient. It tells us everything that we need to know about God and us, how to be saved, all these things. But the Bible doesn't answer all the questions that we might have about various things. It's not meant to do so. It's not a dictionary. Uh, and so it, it, we don't have everything that we want to know. So we don't know if Moses and Aaron had a long relationship over these last 40 years as he's been in the middle of nowhere. We don't know if they send carrier pigeons. Uh, we don't know if they see one another on vacation every now and then. We don't know anything. But we do know that apparently Aaron is told either by God or he knows where Moses is and he's sent by God to go to Moses. So whether it's a miracle or whether God just led him out of the wilderness, they, uh, he's coming in order to provide Moses with some help. And the relationship between Moses and Aaron will be one that Moses hears from God and Moses tells Aaron what to say. So Moses is still leading God's people. He is the one that must go. He is the one that must lead. But Aaron is there just to support him in this endeavor. As we saw uh, from a moment ago, the relationship will be strained at times. Uh, Aaron tries to, remember, do a coup and uh, take his brother out, like crazy style. Um, but but uh, it's clear from God's word that Moses is the one to lead God's people. Aaron is just to be a mouthpiece. Now, before we go to this last verse, it's important to note as well that Moses is not God. Moses is not God. He does not become like God, uh, as, as our friends the Mormons would, would believe. No, no one becomes like God. We cannot become gods. Moses is not here somehow becoming God. Rather, the vocabulary like that he's as God is meaning that God is not going to speak to Aaron at all. God is going to speak to Moses. Moses is going to tell Aaron, this is what you tell God's people. And so that's just kind of describing how the relationship will work as they lead God's People. And the interesting thing about this is that in this moment, Moses also in this is seen as a prophet, as a priest, and as kind of the king over Israel, leading them out. And I wish that I could do a whole other sermon on how Jesus is the true and better Moses, but that day will come in the future. And then we get to our last verse. God says, and take, <clears throat> and take, oh, sorry. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. 
Now, as a last minute reminder, don't forget your staff. Kind of like your mom, you run out, don't forget your coat. Same thing, don't forget your staff. This will be the staff that will demonstrate God's power over the serpent and will be the same one that we later use as a symbol as Moses lifts it high over the, the Red Sea and God separates the water so that his people can pass through. So what we see happening in all this conversation with God and Moses is, is what we just talked about. Now we're going to zoom out just a tiny bit and look at the wider narrative. Now, as we talked about, everything that happened between Moses and God is historically narrative. It's historical narrative. It actually happened. The burning bush, the signs, the miracles, everything. But we also know that Moses wrote this down as a sermon. He wrote it down as a sermon, reminding Israel, reminding himself, reminding future generations how God has dealt well with his people and encouraging us towards gospel faithfulness. So as Moses will write down other things uh, into the future about the anger of the Lord, it will hearken back to this moment when God was first angered at Moses as the leader of his people. And as we talked about, there are blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience, which God gave Israel at the end of Deuteronomy, where we see that if they would keep the promises, they would remain in the land God was about to give them. However, who is able to do that? Who is able to keep the commands of the Lord and walk in his blessing? Nobody. Nobody. That's the rest of the Old Testament. Nobody can do that. And this is exactly what we're going to see over and over and over again throughout Israel's history. Israel will fail to obey God as they ought, and they will run to other idols, to demons, and they will give themselves to celebrate sin and lawlessness, and they will openly rebel against God and kindle his anger against them. And the curses of God will come upon them. The kingdom of Israel, if you remember, there were 12 tribes. They will be divided because of sin, and then the northern kingdom will be destroyed by Assyria. The southern kingdom will be destroyed by Babylon, and then Israel will have 70 years of facing God's discipline from the Lord as they will be sojourners out of the land. And then God will raise up Cyrus the Persian, which is not a man that loves God. In fact, God will use him as a tool for a little bit and then God will destroy him and his judgment will come onto him. But God will use Cyrus to come in and attack Babylon and set God's people free. And then we have Ezra and Nehemiah being sent back to the promised land. This is also the time with Esther, um, where in all of this, we'll see that God is working even in his people being outside of the land and undergoing his discipline. He is a God who cares about his people, defending them, protecting them. Even in their discipline, he is kind. And then God will bring them back into the land, but they will still not be able to uphold all of God's laws perfectly. They're all sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, plagued by sinfulness from birth and by nature, rebels against God, earning God's righteous wrath, his divine judgment against their many sins, unless they have a circumcision of their hearts and they believe upon the promises of God of a future son who would come and redeem and restore all things that are broken and who would be perfect in their place. And then what we see happen in the New Testament is that God fulfills that promise. That Jesus, God the Son, lays humanity alongside of divinity and steps in a time. And he, as the God-man, lives the life we should have lived. And then he who knew no sin, he who had never sinned, became sin. He took upon himself the punishment, the wrath of our sins. And he suffered and he died in our place. But then... Then he rose from the dead three days later that we might be forgiven of our sins and restored back into a right relationship with God and with one another and even within ourselves. And that, my friends, is what is available today. If you're here and you're not a Christian, maybe you've been kicking the tires on Christianity and exploring who Jesus is, that is the offer for you, to come to Jesus and have forgiveness before God of your many sins, lest you face the wrath of God forever and ever and ever one day, because that day is coming. But friend, God has made a way for you to be saved from facing his wrath and justice against your many sins. And it's only if you will come right now 
and confess your sins, repent of your sins, ask him to save you. And friend, he will. In the same way that God is merciful to Moses, God is waiting to be merciful to you. He'll be merciful to you right now. You don't have to worry. You're going to come to him. He's going to be like, how dare you? No, no, no. He knows everything about you. He's beckoning you. No, no, I don't want to, I don't want to bring judgment on you. I want to save you. So come to me. That's the offer for you, friends. And then for those of us who are Christians, as we read verses like this, I want us to think about two things and then two things and then we're done. All right, so two things. Firstly, as we're walking through all this, I want us to remember that we are not Moses. You're not Moses. I know you're like, I'm not an old dude that's like 80 years old and I killed an Egyptian. I know I'm not Moses, but I want us to remind us we're not Moses. God is not calling you or me to lead anyone out of physical slavery and into a physical promised land that fulfill all the things, the righteous requirements of Genesis chapter 15 of God to Abraham. That's none of you. This has already been done. So you are not Moses. No, but his story does make this long for a true and better Moses, Jesus, who's seen us in our sins as slaves to lawlessness. He's come to liberate us. And, and the good news is that there is a coming land for us. But it's not, it's not an earthly one yet. It'll be on the renewed earth, but until that day, we long for this coming kingdom. But it will not be on the earth. Secondly, we are not Israel. We're not promised that if we are faithful to all of God's commands, then evil things will never, ever happen to us. It's not true. Think with me for a moment of Christian history, especially on a day like today. Right? Reformation Day. Christian history is replete, full of men and women who followed Jesus, laying down their lives as martyrs, and countless others who lived under communist regimes, fighting to not lose the gospel in the midst of a wicked and a perverse generation, and things did not go well for them. In fact, as most Christian martyrs throughout history, things really did not go very well for them. Does that mean they're unfaithful to God? By no means, to borrow from Paul. By no means. Think about Jesus himself. Who perfectly fulfilled the law better than Jesus? And yet look at what he did in order to save us, coming under the consequences of all of the broken laws that we might be made right with God. So, so don't believe charlatans who promise you nothing but good things if you'll just come to Jesus. There, there will ultimately be good things. There will ultimately be a new heavens and a new earth. Things will ultimately get better. But your life in the short term might go very badly. You might be a martyr for Christ. You might, at great cost to yourself, lay down the blank check of your life and take the gospel somewhere where they will not be thankful that you're there to share Jesus with them and they will murder you. Friend, there is a a reward waiting for you that is much greater than any reward you'll face on this earth. So we're not Moses, we're not Israel. You might be wondering, well, then what do we do with a text like this? You're reading, you're like, okay, what do I do? Well, after examining it and seeing it in the text and the context, think through redemptive history and how this points us to Jesus, I do believe that there are a couple of things that we can see for us that are helpful for us as Christians. One, God is always faithful to his promises, always. The great news of our God is he will not let one promise fall to the ground, not one of them. He is faithful and true. And just as Israel had to wait and see for 400 years how God would save them, friends, we are waiting and seeing how the end of all things will come and how Jesus will rescue and redeem us from this broken and sinful world. We are, we are one with them in this waiting, in this longing, and it's a beautiful thing. Secondly, I don't have this one written. I wrote it earlier today and I didn't have time to put it on here, but I think it's important. 
that God has his eyes on us. He knows our sufferings. He knows our plans, either in this earth or in the one to come. And he promises one day we will be set free from various things. Thirdly, God uses broken people like Moses and like us to accomplish his plans and purposes. We know from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, that good works uh, are, are things that God has prepared beforehand, that we ought to walk in them. And he's given us his spirit to indwell us and empower us to do the things that he's called us to do. And so we ought to walk in them. And so, brothers and sisters, let us not kindle God's anger by rebelling against his word. It might be tempting and you might have legitimate fears of rejection from others, but we can trust in him. See, it's interesting, isn't it, that we are so tempted, as Moses is, we're so tempted to look at our own inadequacies and our own fears when we know that God is calling us to faithfully share our lives in the gospel with others and to be faithful to his word of making disciples of all nations and how tempted we are to pass that buck on to other people, right? Like, you're not calling me, like, that dude, yes, me, no, I don't think so. And I have felt that a million times in my life, a million of them. What about you? How how often do we act like Moses does in this passage, thinking that someone else has the ability and the gifts to do real ministry and we just don't, right? Like if I could speak like that guy, if if I had the gentleness and humility of that girl, if I looked like them or had a story like them or a background like them, if only I could reason a little bit better, if only I was a little smarter or quick on the draw, I would be faithful to do what God is calling me to do, but I don't. So send someone else, Lord, please. But you know, God could have called someone else to do what he is leading you to do. And if you are faithless, you better believe his promises and plans don't depend on you because they don't. But brother and sister, the joy of participating in the works that God has called you to walk in is a joy that I do not want you to miss out on. Having a front row seat, seeing how God is going to use you, even in your brokenness and even in your messiness, is one of the greatest joys that we can have as his sons and daughters. And can I be extremely honest with you? Looking at what God is doing, even in our church, even in our midst, is a bit overwhelming to me. I do not have, many of you know, the skills necessary to do anything that I'm doing. And it's not false humility. This is just legitimately the truth. When I am preaching every week, I begin to look at a blank page of paper on my laptop and I say, Lord, I have no clue what these people need. I have no clue what these people need. I have no ability to speak to them, to encourage them. I have nothing wonderful to say. I am not, um, I am not able to convict anyone of sins. I'm not, an, I'm not able to encourage anyone into gospel faithfulness. And so if you don't show up and help me, I have no hope of seeing any gospel fruit happen at all. If you don't send God the Spirit to work in a profound way in people's hearts, I have nothing to do. The great thing in that, though, is that God does. God takes his word and applies it into our lives in a thousand different ways. And all the praise of that only could go to a sovereign God who can use someone as broken as me. And the great news is he can use someone as broken as you. He can use someone as broken as Nino and as broken as Matt. He's all of us in his great story and plan. It's not different levels. Like I'm not the alpha level. I'm like the Z level. God has all these things meant for us as his people. He's given you his spirit. He's given you works that you have to do. And he's calling you to go and do it. And so... Brothers and sisters, I can be the first to attest, if God can use broken and flawed men like me, he can use you too. I am convinced of it because I see his work in my life and it's one of the greatest joys I have. So I don't want to miss, you to miss out on God working through your life because you're worried you don't have what it takes to be used by, by him. Because, guess what? You don't.
<laughs> you do not have what it takes. And that is the point. You don't. You're not a special snowflake. You do not have the gifts, skills, or abilities to make yourself able to be used by God. You don't. You're a broken, flawed person. You're super messed up, just like me. And this is why we need Jesus. Amen? This is why we need God the Spirit to empower us for good works that the Father has planned beforehand. And the good news is that he's given us his word and his promises to be with us, to use our broken lives to see his plans and purposes unfold so that we can confidently trust in him and not in us. We don't want our lives to be about us and how great we are and do these things. And we want to be, we want to be just like John the Baptist. Right? I love John the Baptist's ministry. John the Baptist constantly is like, bro, don't look at me, just look at Jesus. Like, I don't care if you remember me, just Jesus. And they'll be like, aren't you worried people are leaving you and following Jesus? Nope, nope, that's what they should do. Right? I'm just going to die and then it's all about Jesus. Right? And, and this is what we need to be as God's people. Broken people that he uses for his glory. You don't have it in you to do what he's calling you to do. And that is the point. If you did, you would start thinking, I've got this, and you don't. God does. And we can trust him and rest in him and follow him and love Jesus. That's what we need to really, I think, take away from this. This is what I greatly took away. Just God really used that to minister to my heart in a million ways. And there's a great freedom there is in that, isn't there? Where, where you don't have to be some super stud all-star. You just, I'm broken and God uses me. Praise God. So dear friends, don't, don't think that God needs you to get to a certain level or do a certain thing or graduate from seminary or go to this thing in order to use your life. He's given you your life, your job, your friends, your family, your neighbors to share your life and the gospel with them. He's decisively put you there. They need the hope of Christ and you have it. So let's pray and ask that God would give us gospel boldness uh, to continue to live this out in this upcoming week.